I cannot make any claim of having been persecuted anything like these um, uh, these churches. I've had minor suffering in comparison, certainly. Uh, that one time when I was uh, just out of college, I was doing an internship in New York City. I was there for a couple of years at a local church. And one of the things we did, we had a book table out on the sidewalk in a, a business area, and we were selling Christian books and other things, or giving them away in most cases. A lot of people passing by. New York, walking is the best way to get around anyway. And uh, one guy came by my book table. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what nationality he was, but I think he was Muslim. But he said, what do you got here? And I said, well, I've just got some books about the Bible and about knowing God. And uh, I mentioned Jesus, and he, he sneered at me, and he said, that, that's, that's bad, that's horrible. And as he walked away, uh, I, over his shoulder I heard him say, I curse you with leprosy. And I thought, wow, that's never happened in Rockford. I curse you with leprosy. Now, that, that, was, that was 40 years ago. The curse has not come true, so you're, you're all safe. But I thought, I, I think I was just persecuted. And I was insulted, maybe, but I don't think I was really persecuted. But I learned that another time I was on the mission field. My wife and I were missionaries in France uh, 30 years ago. And uh, we were in um, uh, Montpellier, which is on the south coast of France. Kind of like Florida, approximately, as far as uh, um, uh, the uh, climate and such. One of the days we were, I was working with my team, we were doing some remodeling at the church, and uh, one of the workers, besides us uh, uh, Americans and Canadians who were there, I was the team leader, uh, was this Moroccan guy, and he was doing the stucco work on the outside of the building. He was really good at it, and we were really terrible at it, but he, he was doing that work. One time we took a, one of the days we were working, we took a break, and we were having our lunch together. And someone else had told me that he was, he was born a Muslim, but he, uh, he is now a Christian believer. I thought, I need to hear this story. I need to hear. We had a, a North African mission in Montpellier, so there was a lot of missionaries as well as believers from North Africa that we came in contact with. And so I asked him, tell me how you came to know Jesus. How, is, how did he impact your life? No. I don't speak Arabic. He doesn't speak English. We had this whole conversation in French. And he started to tell me the story of how he became a Christian. Born his whole life. He lived always in Morocco, never intended to leave there. And he just felt an emptiness in his heart, thinking, I wish Allah loved me. I wish I could have forgiveness. No matter how hard I work, I just can never know if I am can get this sin out of my life. He was burdened. He was depressed. He was discouraged. Prayed more and more and more. Well, one night when he was listening to the radio, he had just going through the dials, he came across a Christian uh, gospel program being beamed from, from France to North Africa in Arabic. He said, well, that's interesting. That's and he listened to it. It was from North Africa Mission, who were headquartered in Montpellier, where I was at. And he listened to it. I can be forgiven of my sins? I need to know more, but it's about Jesus. He listened to the, you know, in quiet. So no one is supposed to listen to this. He listened night after night in private, in secret. And after a few weeks, he just prayed. Jesus, if you're real, if you really died for my sins, please help me to know because this is a big deal. This changes everything. If that's the way I get to know God. Now he's in an upper room, hidden, because this has got to be secret. The room filled with light. Jesus appeared to him, to this man. He's by himself. And Jesus spoke very briefly to him, called him by name. I don't even remember his name, but Jesus knew his name. 
and said, I have heard your prayers. I love you. If you ask, I will forgive your sins. And the man prayed and said, oh, please, I'm a sinner. I want to be forgiven. The room was then dark again, uh, and, and Jesus was gone. It's the only time Jesus ever appeared to him was at one time. Kind of like this book of Revelation. You think Jesus doesn't speak anymore? He's speaking all over this planet. He has never stopped. He knows people who are seeking him. And so the story is not over. He continued to listen to the, the um, radio messages. He wrote in for a copy of the New Testament. They mailed it to him in a secret envelope. It's, all, it's not in a hardbound book. It's in things you can fit in a number 10 envelope discreetly in Arabic. And he would read it. He put it in a secret place behind some boards in the wall. And he would take it out and he'd read some more. He put it back so it wouldn't be found. Uh, unfortunately, his wife was doing some cleaning. She noticed something was amiss. She found the New Testament that he had been looking at for some weeks after that point. And that is what changed everything. The, she started yelling. The family, the relatives all came over. They took him out in the street and denounced him publicly. They found boards and clubs, and they beat him for having a Bible. And then they said his, his wife had to de- denounce him, his children had to denounce him, and then they said, get out. And he took the, took the boat from Morocco to uh, south of France, and they had a funeral for him. They said, he's dead to us. He may not. He got allowed his wife to remarry by having her be a widow. He started looking for the, he had the address for the mission. Eventually got to Montpellier, knocked on the door. Here I am. I'm a brother. Oh, here's our audience. Of course, there's many others that they touched. I was stunned. I thought, I've heard about people being persecuted. I had never met one face to face. I was 30 years old then. I thought, and then I said something that I now look back, it was really dumb. But in my heart, I was thinking, you poor guy. You really have lost a lot. And I said, that really must have been hard for you. You've lost your family. You've lost any means of support. You have to be, you're exiled to a new place um, where you're a stranger. That you really have lost, you really even um, suffered a lot. And then he responded something that um, I've never forgotten. He said, I love my family. I'll, I miss them a lot. But I love Jesus more. And he cares for me. And then I thought, I was trying to give this man pity. I think, I know he said this, but I'm thinking he probably pitied me. Because I had never come to a place of loving Jesus that much. And I've struggled as God is my helper, to do that now. Here we are in the church of Pergamum, and let's read this passage. See what Jesus, who appeared to um, the Apostle John, said this to them. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have 
those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will come to you and fight against those with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Amen. The word of the Lord. Uh, this is, uh, there's three paragraphs approximately. There's three headings. Worship him, uh, live for him, and overcome with him. Nate, could I have the first slide? Just a little of the map. Pergamum. Uh, one of the seven churches, he's here on the western coast of what is now modern Turkey or Asia Minor at that time. All of these seven churches were relatively close together. They are um, like approximately the distance from here to maybe Madison, Wisconsin, about 50-mile column on each side. So they're, they're close by. They're all on the same road. They're neighbors, more or less. My city, Pergamum, is like Madison. It's the biggest it has a lot of political power, big buildings, a lot of money is being spent. Uh, the other um, villages and towns may have been smaller. Ephesus was a bigger city. This was a Roman regional capital. Next one. This is a, a drawing of archaeologists did to try and give an idea of how big this town was. A lot of buildings. It was powerful. It was impressive. If you were there, you would uh, think, I have really, this is like, like I said, Madison or Chicago or some other place you visited, that is, the architecture is astounding. The money and other attention is being given. In that culture, all of the state buildings, the government buildings, are integrated with religion. Anything that happens has to do with the idolatry and deities that are being part of their culture. It is together. So you would worship the emperor, which would be, as we call him, Caesar is our terminology. Uh, and you would at least pretend. Not everyone was a devout believer, but you pretended. If you wanted things to go well for you, that was part of the, the thing. In this passage, it talks about uh, Jesus says to um, the church, I know where you live. This beautiful place, and this is just a portion, it really spread out. Uh, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you have remained true to my name. So the church, there's no cathedrals here. They're meeting in private homes. They're meeting in very humble situations relative to what the rest of their pagan neighbors are living and, and uh, worshiping at. Three major temples, which could have been that. We don't know exactly what he means, that Satan has his throne. There's a lot to choose from. But there are three possibilities that commentators may have think could have been it. Certainly the people in Pergamum understood what this meant. One was there's the Temple of Trajan. The Temple of Trajan was a huge um, temple that was built. Trajan was the emperor before the one they had at that time. So people remembered him. And he was the first... Roman emperor who was considered a deity. He was given worship as though he was a god. And so they, when he died, they built a temple and they offered sacrifices at this magnificent temple of Trajan. After this, many other emperors wanted the same treatment, so these were spread throughout the Roman Empire. The second uh, possibility for um, this uh, reference to Satan's throne is something called the Asclepion, which is hard to say and it's hard to spell. But it was written regards to the um, god Asclepius, who was the god about medical science and healing. And uh, I, this is going to sound kind of strange, but um, a major portion, portion of being, uh, getting the top care in the Roman world had to do with um, temple worship and with, in this case especially, Asclepian, the, which is the name of the building, uh, had a lot of snakes. They had snakes on purpose. Snakes were very valuable somehow in diagnosis and treatment of disease. 
Imagine a hospital. I'm just going to spend two minutes, and then this really creeps me out, so I'm going to go on. But I need to make the point about they, they shock people here with the throne of Satan. Imagine a hospital, not like anyone you've ever been in, but where non-venomous snakes crawl around on the floor all over the place, underneath the patients. And if they give you sedatives to keep you calm, and if the snake climbs onto your bed, whatever you're laying on, uh, that's a good sign. And these are non-venomous snakes. Still, it is kind of strange. And then the doctor, if that's the right word, will then ask you, what dream did you have while the snake was slithering on your body? And then whatever dream you tell them you had, that helps them to determine which treatment you're supposed to get. Sounds like the throne of Satan to me. Uh, snake hospital, I don't know. And, you know we, have, we have a reference to this even today. Um, if you look at the, uh, the seal of the American Medical Society, or maybe you've seen an ambulance go by and it's got a seal on there, one of the parts of that symbolic is a staff with a snake climbing around it. It's from Rome. <laughs> that was, they were the beginning of modern medical, uh, modern, uh, of medical history. That's, that's what this implies. The third one, which was a big temple there, was the Temple of Zeus. Now here, this is an artist's rendering. Uh, the Temple of Zeus uh, was a massive thing. It's actually an altar. Zeus was this prime um, deity of, of Rome. And so uh, day and night, there are sacrifices being made, as you can see, the smoke rising uh, and the people coming. This is constant, ongoing uh, worship to, um, to Zeus. And we know that this is, this is a faithful rendering because unlike a lot of other of the, of the, um, the ruins, which are you know, basically rocks on the ground now, they've been torn out, we actually have a good... Uh, reenactment of what the temple of Zeus looked like. Here he is. Now, this is not a recreation. This is the temple of Zeus. This is the actual stones in the sculptures, except it's not in Pergamum. This is a thousand miles away in a special museum in Berlin and has been there for a hundred years. They pull all the, the pieces together and they recreated the, uh, the temple of Zeus there in Berlin. It is very impressive to see. Uh, and this is what the paganism of that time was. Imagine 10 to 15 buildings bigger than this in Pergamon. You can understand that when it says the throne of Satan, there was a lot of pagan worship going on. Thank you, Nathan. Um, here it talks about this one brother, Antipas, who was, we have, there's no other further reference to him. He was, um, he was killed, uh, he was executed as part of his witness. We don't know exactly, there is some speculation. Jesus knows this man's name as he knows all believers' names. Wherever you are, you are not a secret. You might feel, well, my name isn't famous, I don't have, how can God keep track? He knows exactly. Now, Antipas was, a, this is a very public execution, and he probably wasn't the only one. But he is mentioned here as an encouragement that the Lord is able to take your testimony and use it for his glory. Why is this, a, why is this so, so much conflict here? Here's what's going on just in the, the comparison of the two systems. There is the idea in all of pagan um, religion that there is multiple gods. It's called polytheism. Sometimes it's just a few. Sometimes, like in Hinduism, there are thousands and thousands of uh, spirit beings. But in any case, the Jews and the Christians came with monotheism, saying there's one God. And you, these are like oil and water. They cannot mix. Either there's one God... Or there are multiple gods. And they were saying that you 
What we want you to do, Christians, you can fit in if you add Jesus to all the rest. He can be in the, in the group. They would not. They would say, we worship Jesus. We will not put him in the crowd. We will not add him to the shelf and say we're going to uh, serve him and the others. They are mutually exclusive. Unfortunately, martyrdom was very common or becoming more common at the end of the first century. What about today? Is this old stuff? I'm sure I'm not telling you anything that you didn't know. There are more people who have been martyred in the last hundred years, even in the last 70 years, than throughout all the preceding 2,000 years. In other words, it is increasing. I'm not saying that to be startling. I'm saying is that we have brothers and sisters in other countries uh, last week and in the last few decades who have been given the same challenge that Antipas had. We'll let you live if you will serve another God besides Jesus. And these brothers and sisters in different places and different countries have said, I serve Jesus. Whatever the cost, I'm going to serve Jesus. It's happened in Cuba. It's happened in China. It's happened in Russia. It's happened in some Muslim countries. Certainly the, the brother I was just sharing about, he, uh, he was lucky to escape with his life. Uh, and, and I'm sure if he'd gone back, they, they would have finished the job. They're being merciful to him by letting him live bruised and bloodied. That is Satan's um, attack on us. Do you want to live or do you want to die? And these brothers and sisters, when the time comes, God has given them grace to say, I know, whom, I know who is my Savior, and I will be faithful to Jesus However many days I have here on earth, Antipas uh, gave a witness to that church. Antipas stood firm. The primary challenge being given here in this, uh, this situation, this city, was about authority. In other words, who is the boss? Who do you submit to? Who do you obey? Zeus is on the throne. No, Zeus is imaginary. Zeus is not on the throne. Uh, Trajan is on the throne, and whoever is Caesar's that would be after that. Now, they did have armies, and they did have other uh, uh, means of exercising their power. And the Christians had to say, he, whoever, Trajan and, the, and, and all the others, they are just people, just men, fallen men. I am not going to worship them. I will not worship them. I will be... a a law-abiding citizen up to a point. But if I have to choose, as, as um, Peter and John said when they were confronted in, the, um, uh, in Jerusalem, they said, we have to choose who shall we obey, God or man? We're, if we have to choose that, God has the higher authority. First commandment in the, in the, uh, the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. I don't know how that can be any clearer. Second commandment, you shall make no graven image, no physical representation, and worship the, the, the stone image. Those temples I was just showing you, that was the way you did it every time. Every time you went into a Roman temple, everybody was required to take a pinch of incense and toss it into the bowl. It didn't matter. You didn't have to be sincere. You just had to do the action. That in itself was a contradiction of your faith in Jesus. I was reminded as I was studying this, I reminded of a story of Herod um, in the middle part of the first century. And he was a kind of a Jewish uh, secular king uh, in the Palestine. And at one time he made a, and he had some big rally. He made a big speech And the crowd said, this is the voice of a God, not a man. They were so impressed, or maybe they wanted to impress him, I'm not sure. But he was, they were applauding him in this group. And the scriptures say, 
Then an angel of the Lord struck Herod dead. He didn't say it, but I mean, he didn't give the praise, but he did not correct them when they said, this is the voice of a God and not a man. This is serious business. It reminds me of what's here in Pergamum. A sword comes from, is being held by Jesus as he's saying it. This is serious business. To claim to be God or to have the authority of God or the supremacy that a God would have, you shall expect to be humbled. In fact, it says in Philippians 2, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is where all the spiritual battles are being fought right now. Who is God? Who is God? Do you know in your heart, not just the songs we've been singing, but in your heart, is Jesus the only authority in your life? Here in church, we had some, or in the Church of Pergamon, we have some mixed uh, um, uh, problems. And uh, that is, that's true for us as well. I hope we're going to see that. So the first thing is we need to worship. What is worship? Well, we've, some worship is singing songs. Music can be part of it. Worship is a heart attitude. I would hope, and I know this, my brother Ryan would, would say this as well, if he hasn't said it in other times, is that if the only time that you worship is in this room on Sunday morning, it is not going to make a big difference in your life or mine. What Jesus implies is we worship seven days a week. It's just on Sunday morning, we do it as a group. How do you worship? How is it that worship is a part of your heart life, an expression of your love for the Lord? You can do it certainly in a group, maybe in small groups could be part of another thing, in your family as a mom and dad and husband and wife with your children. I know a number of families in our church do that on a regular basis. You can do it privately in your own private devotions. You could sing, you could read poetry, read the Psalms, whatever it is, it is worship. What is not worship, what may not be worship, let me put it, that's a better way of putting it, is just listening to Christian music on the radio. That can be helpful, certainly that's an encouragement. But sometimes the radio becomes the background noise. We're not listening to the words. It's just more pleasant songs usually than what we're hearing on the local rock and roll station. Worship is your participation and my participation in, in acknowledging Jesus as Savior and Lord. So here is the first paragraph talking about worship the Lord. Only worship the Lord. Worship the Lord actively. Worship the Lord with your whole heart. If not, when the time of testing comes, you will find that you don't have the strength to resist. It doesn't say this here, but I am kind of extrapolating from the text. I would guess that Antipas was very, very good at his private worship. That's, that's, that's the only conclusion I can draw. I think that Moroccan brother I met I bet he was very, very good at private worship, saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for hearing me, for getting me a copy of the New Testament, for protecting me, for saving my life. The second paragraph, we have some, uh, uh, some heresy problems. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual um, immorality. Interesting, because of course this is a, um, a, t a, a biblical example from hundreds of years before. This is like at least 2,000 years before. This is when, the, this is from the uh, Numbers 22, the nation of Israel has come out of Egypt, and now they're just wandering around uh, in the desert, 
getting close to the time when Moses is going to lead them to the edge of the promised land. They don't have a permanent place, and uh, they are a threat to all of the countries around there. And they're having some military successes. And Balak, who was a Moabite king, said, oh man, I need some help. These, these Israelites have got some kind of supernatural God on their side because they're not that impressive. So it must be that their victories are being given by um, uh, more than military power. So he hired someone, a, um, a witch doctor kind of person, a shaman named Balaam. He was not Jewish. He was not Moabite. He just said, I'm ready to uh, uh, do supernatural work for whoever pays the right price. And Balak, uh, amazingly, uh, refused to curse the Israelites. That's the the reference that I'm reading here. Uh, Balaam uh, was a prophet. He was not a believer. He had two appearances by angels. That probably didn't happen very often. Who told him, you are not to to say a word of cursing against the nation of Israel. Plus, he had the talking donkey, which was uh, an interesting side note there. I, I, between all of these different messages, I think Balaam got the point. Don't curse. And Balak, the Moabite king, said, look, I'm going to give you all this gold. I'm going to give you all these sheep and all, all the other things. I'm going to make you a wealthy man. I want you to use whatever powers you've got to overcome the powers they've got. And Balaam refused. He blessed them instead. But there is a... Well, Balaam is a hero then. Not exactly. Balaam apparently gave Balak some advice. And he said, I cannot curse the nation of Israel. I will die. the, The angel that appeared to me made that very clear. And I don't want to die. But here's what you can do. What you need to do is to... Uh, go t- get the uh, nation of Israel to curse themselves by their disobedience. I haven't been in this situation myself, but I can imagine, try and imagine, they've been getting manna from heaven to eat for many years. And it tastes good, and it's healthy. They're strong in their, their good health, um, but it's the same thing. So what Balak did was, he put altars of sacrifice to the pagan god Baal close enough. I think it was probably upwind, and it smelled good. In other words, he used barbecue as a way of, as a spiritual weapon. Um, uh, I, I doubt that's rarely been done, but um, it worked for people who have not been able to eat meat for a long, long time. And then they used their um, daughters and uh, some temple prostitutes dressed, I think, probably provocatively, and they put them in within eyesight of the Jewish men. And the two together, pretty soon, the Jewish men are going out at night and uh, they are um, finding girlfriends, not among the Jewish women, but among the Moabite women. And um, God brought a plague, and Moses had to. Uh, bring judgment on them. So here is, this is the same thing happening in Pergamum. They've got meat sacrificed to idols. Every, every bite of that meat was put on a pagan altar. We worship you, O Zeus. We worship you. And they took it off. It wasn't completely consumed. And then they put on a fresh one. And the, the previous one was then brought to the marketplace. That was the source of meat. I'm sure meat was very inexpensive in that town because there were hundreds of sacrifices being done on a regular basis, day after day after day. Well, if you want meat and you're smelling it, it's the whole town smells like sacrifices. It's, it, it, it's in every home, whether you want to have it or not. And also there are, the worship was included, uh, temple prostitutes. And uh, that is a temptation as well. Jesus is speaking to the church in Pergamum and saying, I know where you're at. I know this is not easy for you to be in a a wicked pagan town. 
However, I will give you strength. I will give you the ability to resist these temptations. We need to live for Jesus. We need to make it very clear is that what has God told us to do? Now, in their case, a um, few decades before, this is at the end of the first century, so about the middle, about 40, 40 50 years before, they had a, the Council of Jerusalem where they tried to decide this. Is eating meat sacrificed to idols okay? And the, the, um, the Council of Elders got together and they said, tell all the churches... There may not have been a church at Pergamum at that time, but it was all the believers. Tell the believers out in the Roman world who are coming to Christ that they just have to deny the meat sacrificed to idols because of the pagan connotation. There is an association. It will hurt your witness to your neighbors because they see eating meat is a way of worshiping Zeus and anyone else who this was offered to. That's what they think. You can try and tell them it's not, but that's what they're thinking. And sexual promiscuity. Every man should be faithful to his wife. That is what the church and the council in Jerusalem said. This is the rule we've given. If your witness is going to be strong, you need to live for Jesus. Looking at this um, this, uh, message, I'm looking at it thinking... How these are activities. The sin is in my heart. The activity is an outward expression of what's in my heart. The first step is not to give a bunch of rules. Don't touch this. Only have this. Is who is Lord of my heart? Live only for Jesus. And Paul made the same point in uh, talking to the church at Corinth. And they had the same problem. This was very common in all the pastors, in all the churches, where the um, Christians were a minority, and either they had been a part of it before, and they're certainly they're surrounded by it now. And Paul said to the church at Corinth, says, you must avoid all public immorality. Every bit, no matter what excuse you've got, he says, and this is the reason, because you not, are not your own You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Oh, that's the answer. Even if someone else has an excuse or, yeah, but on the festival days, that's just a, you know, that's not a problem. No, I was bought with a price. Oh, but uh, there is, it's no real harm. It's just one night. No, I was bought with a price. And uh, our loyalty to Jesus is um, similar to, to their mind. They had the custom of slavery. I'm not recommending slavery, of course, but i saying that was a familiar social construct to them. And so Paul often talks, and other um, uh, apostles talk about, I'm a slave of Jesus. And what they understood in the first century, and what we can imagine, is that a slave is not the same as an employee. An employee works for us, if you're the boss for a period of time, they can change jobs. So I don't, you're not paying me enough. I don't like the hours. I'm going to a different employer, and I'll work for him or her for a while until I get annoyed about something else, and then I'll go on. It's, your, it's a voluntary relationship, or even a temp worker, which is even usually a much shorter time of, of work. A slave was permanent. This is the rest of your life. You have one master. That master determines how long you work, and if you get paid anything or privileges or benefits, that's what you get. You can't negotiate. It's out of their kindness. Jesus is our master. He writes the rules. He gives the blessings. We live for him. And I think that's true for these brothers and sisters in countries where persecution is more common than here where they say, either I can do like the society does, or I can do what Jesus wants. We're going to have to, I believe, do some, some adjustment, some, some greater focus as these years go by. We're going to be pushed more and more to say, look, just keep your religion, keep your Christianity 
at Rock Valley Bible Church on Sunday morning. We don't care what you do there. Anything you want. But when you come to this neighborhood, to this school, to this employment, pretend as though you're not a Christian and do what the rest of us are doing. Uh, and a, an example of the encouragement that might be to, to some, there is, I, I, I pass a church on the, on the way to my office, and they have a big banner on the side of the church. It's been there for many months. Uh, and they're, I'm sure they're doing it as a promotion, as, a, as advertising for their congregation. It's, to be fair, it's, it's a rather liberal congregation. Uh, and the banner says, big letters, Jesus never rejected anyone, neither do we. Uh, I know my, my brothers who are preaching through the book of Revelation, I think Jesus got a little bit confrontational. <laughs> there was some rejection when he says, I'm coming with the sword. That's not the same as I'm giving you a pat on the back. Jesus did reject people, both in the Gospels. He was very clear on some things and said, you're not, part of, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. You can look at all the verses yourself. So for a church to say Jesus never rejected anyone is, is inaccurate by the most basic of biblical studies. And neither do we. Uh, I, I, that's what happens when the gospel is corrupted. When we are compromising, which is what they're being tempted to do. And we are being tempted to do in our time. I, I thought of uh, uh, just a few months ago, I saw this example. I'm sure there's many you've seen. There was a college student who went to a, a, um, a large university on the West Coast. And this, this brother was a, um, a Christian believer. And he went to the classroom. You know, well, they've seen this large auditorium, so there's a lot of seats. And he sat down. He got there early. And he opened his Bible and he read silently. He was reading his Bible before class began. He got there about 25 minutes early. Place is mostly empty. The teacher, the professor came in and said, what are you reading? To the student. And he said, I'm reading the Bible. The Bible? Get that out of here. I will not have that in my classroom. He said, well, that class hasn't started yet. He's, he's a registered student for the class that starts in few minutes. And she said, oh, I'm, I'm not going to have that. She went, went and made a long speech about the patriarchy and racism and bigotry and all kinds of other stuff. And he said, well, I'm, I'm supposed to be here. I just happen to have a Bible open. And she's, I mean, she was rather hostile. She called the dean, had told the dean, come in, I got to throw somebody out who won't leave. And uh, uh, the dean came in and was, little, was less hostile, but was still trying to support the teacher. And perhaps he knew that the student had pressed record on his smartphone and was recording the whole thing. And he said, uh, what are you doing? He said, I'm just reading a Bible to myself. Well, the, this bothered the teacher. You're going to have to leave. He said, no, no, I, I paid my tuition. I can sit here in class. Uh, I'll, I promise I'll put it away when class starts. Uh, the, the dean leaned on him some more. I mean, not physically leaning, but pushed him and could not get him to compromise. He said, no, I'm, I'm going to continue to read my Bible and uh, be a witness. Wonderful. He said it very calmly. He didn't have to be disrespectful or any other way. I thought, God bless that young man. I don't know who his pastor, who his, his parents are, but they ought to be proud. He lived for Jesus. Not just on Sunday morning, but on Monday morning and Tuesday and Wednesday and Saturday and evenings and mornings, wherever he is, he doesn't, not always with the Bible open, he is the Bible, okay? You and me, people who have never read the book of Acts are looking at us. We are the Bible. We are the testimony. And we're going to, the words that we say, the, the tone of our mouth, we are a witness for Jesus wherever we go. Last point. The last paragraph is, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
To him who overcomes, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. And I'm... you, this is a, you know, the book of Revelation has a lot of symbols in it. This is an example of what's on almost every page. And uh, you probably want to know what is the hidden manna, the white stone, the new secret name. And the answer is, I don't know. I can make something up, but you know I was making it up. Um, I'm not sure that John the Apostle knew exactly what that meant. He was confused. He was seeing a lot of new stuff. And he wrote it down. And I'll figure this out later. I don't know. Here's what I do know. Here's what I do know. Jesus said this to encourage people. So here's what you avoid by being faithful, and here's what you get. But whatever the hidden manna, the white stone, the secret name, which he didn't intend them to really understand. This is the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. Going through the whole message and getting to the last four chapters of the book of Revelation, that's where you get to what this represents. The last four chapters, the new heavens and the new earth. No more sickness. No more war. Jesus is on the throne. He fills the city with light. There is no government corruption. Jesus is the government. There is no poverty. There is no hunger. There is no uh, animosity. We are now reflecting Jesus. Everybody in this room is, will be more like Jesus. Everybody. I'll still recognize all of you. But you won't be the same. Praise God. I won't be the same. Praise God. That is the city I want to live in. (laughs) That is the community of faith I want to be in. Everybody loving God. Anything God says to us, we all need to hear. And that includes this. Good news and bad news. Paul wrote, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I don't like the part about the rebuking and the correcting, but that's exactly what's happening in these seven churches. Jesus was giving some correction, and sometimes his words were a rebuke. Listen to me. This is serious. It was a correction. The reward for overcoming is a deeper bond with Jesus. It's not money, it's not fame. It's not stuff. Uh, ask these believers who lost everything in all these different countries where persecution is more common than it is here. We may be inconvenienced, at least so far, but in many of these countries, their houses are burned down, family members are killed, and other things they say. My hope is in the next world. I will be re- reunited with my family, and I have Jesus. They can never take that away. Can never take that away. Paul wrote, he was in a Roman prison. And his hope was on the promises of God. He said, I know why I'm suffering all as I am. It's because of the testimony of Jesus. I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. He says, I know. I know who he is. I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. I know whom I have believed. There is our key to unlock this door of what is, um, what is faithful living. And I'd like to uh, um, come to a, a conclusion as a thinking about this idolatry business. Idolatry is unknown to us mostly. I mean, it, it was common then, as I was just showing in the Every street, every place in Rome had idols. So they understood that. You know, we have idols right here in Loves Park, McChesney Park, Rockford. Idols are all around. They're not statues. They are um, temptations for us not to serve God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I, one of the idols uh, you may be unfamiliar with or maybe uh, don't want to acknowledge, it's true for me as well. I can see you're all looking very nice here on a Sunday morning. You prepared to come in, you're looking good, which means that probably uh, everybody in the room 
uh, spent some time in front of a mirror this morning. And when you're in front of a mirror, whoever you see there is one of your idols. Everyone, every one of us. I have a little grandbaby that I love, and so she's very amusing. Uh, and uh, the things that she does, I mean, she's, you know, she's tiny. Uh, I know, look at me, look at me. And isn't that cute? I do it too. Look at me. Is anybody paying attention to me? Am I getting any attention? It's the selfishness of our heart. That is an idol. We need to take that idol. This idol is saying right here, kick it into the valley. Jesus is who I serve. I got to stop worshiping myself and anything else which is distracting from the worship of God. I hope that everyone here wants to stand for Jesus. I hope that everybody here, if you have not given your heart to Jesus before, do it this morning. Why? Because Monday morning, someone is going to try and uh, influence you like Balaam influenced the Moabites, or Balaam influenced the Israelites because of the Moabite. If Jesus is not on the throne, you will fall. Let him be your Savior and let him be your Lord. And you will know peace, you will find joy, and you will know the blessing of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, speak to our hearts. Let us know, Lord, how we can uh, let you be the Lord of our lives. Because um, if we're not serving you, we are serving an idol or idols. Father, we want to be faithful so that we are like Antipas and like the rest of those brothers and sisters in Pergamum who heard this message and took it to heart and made you Lord of their life. Thank you, Lord, for your patience and for the grace that allows us to start over again. In Jesus' name, amen.